Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. It's a little nothing of a story, isn't it? Just a, just a few verses. It's right in the middle of a much larger story about Jesus healing the daughter of a Roman centurion named Jairus. And it's nine verses? Just in the middle. The crowd is walking toward Jairus's house and somehow in the middle of that larger story of healing is this snippet about a woman. About a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years Blood, which I just need to say does not really render her unclean. That's kind of a mistranslation as our Bible study is learning. But which does restrict her from community, as does the flow of any bodily fluid that is associated with life. That restriction is not really designed to last for 12 years. That's the unfortunate part of this story. It's more supposed to be kind of a monthly thing in the moments when a woman isn't pregnant or a post-birth thing. But then here we are. It's just the way it works. Come back when you stop bleeding, lady. Apparently it's taking longer than it usually does. But there wasn't a way out. There wasn't a, an escape clause for that particular restriction. So here she is, 12 years later. But 12 years is a long time, and she isn't about to let it become 13. You know, she tries all the things she can think of to get out of this restriction, to go out of this particular element of Jewish law that was not actually designed for someone like her. And she just walks one day, steps out of her restricted area steps out of her place of being isolated because after all, it's been 12 years and what does she have to lose? I guarantee it's not nearly as much as she has to gain. And so she pushes through the crowd. She risks censure should anyone see her, should anyone note her condition. She who has tried for over a decade to find answers, to gain healing, she pushes her way through the crowd, and we can imagine her increasing desperation, right? As she thinks back over the failures of doctors, the voices that tell her they can't do anything, having all of that just sink into her, become part of her. Have you ever had that happen? Where the words that other people say about you become part of you? Sink in and... You become no more than what other people say that you are. In this point, she has become no more than the bleeding woman. The sick woman, the infirm woman, her whole identity reduced down to her diagnosis, her illness, and all of its intractability. Is that what she's walking away from in this moment? I wonder if she spent all of those 12 years knowing that she was, in fact, 
a lot more than that diagnosis, that she was, in fact, more than just the bleeding. Or maybe it just came over her one day in a bolt of awareness as she sought this one last desperate hope when Jesus came into town. And I wonder if that knowledge about herself, that insistence that she was more than all of the voices around her were telling her that she was, was that actually the moment of healing? As the woman sought what she knew was hers, her belovedness before God, her worth even in the face of everyone telling her that she was broken, Did her healing happen maybe even before she got her fingers on that one little piece of fabric down there? And I wonder if what Jesus felt was that power that he gave or was that power that she took? That she took as her birthright as a child of God. What Jesus felt, was that the power of wholeness? Existing in this world, was that the power of the kingdom breaking through? Was that the presence of the one who claimed the promises that God gives to all of us if we can just see them? I do not doubt the literal nature of this woman's illness. And y'all know me well enough to know that I don't take too much too literally. But in this case, we're going with it. I do believe that she actually lost real blood for 12 years. And yet I also do not doubt that it is not only literal physical illness from which we need healing. Indeed, often it is not the illness itself that causes as much distress as the consequences to our lives as we try to live that illness in community. And so I look around at all of your faces, at all of your beings in this room, and I wonder... How many of us bleed as she bled, albeit metaphorically? I truly hope none of us have ever bled as she bled, in the literal sense of that. I wonder how many open wounds are right here among us, right here, right now. And I wonder how many more wounds we create from the need that we have to hide our woundedness to hide our brokenness, to not bring that forth into the communities, even the ones that are supposed to love us? How much do we tear ourselves apart, hiding the already torn parts for fear of bleeding all over those around us? How much do we deepen our own wounds for fear of becoming nothing more than our pain in the eyes of our communities? For even now, Without the laws of uncleanliness and all of that, we still marginalize the bleeding and the suffering, especially if it goes on just a little too long, even in grief, which we don't give nearly enough time to, as we discussed last week. The very fact of being wounded, being broken, can cut us off from the community that we need in order to find healing at all, because pain creates discomfort. And we're not good at that. As I was preparing this sermon the other day, I found myself with a song stuck in my head. You know, does that ever happen to you when you're 
working on something and suddenly use little snippet of a song keeps floating through and repeating and repeating and repeating. Yeah. And I realized it's probably one that y'all know because it's by Pete Seeger. And it's back in the 1960s ish. I don't really know the date on that particular song, but it goes like this. It goes, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes all the same. There's a green one and a blue one and a pink one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same raise your hand if you know that one please tell me i'm not the only one who knows that i see see i finally came up with a pop culture reference y'all know yay yeah it's a great song and it's a powerful song as it raises a mirror before us because it's not just about the conformity of that one particular time period in which he was writing, but it is a larger truth of how we too tend to live in community. We put up certain understandings of what is okay and what is not, what is acceptable in polite society, and what we must hide because it is too uncomfortable. Bleeding and the potential for illness. Or, maybe, a little closer to home, Grief, or anxiety, or depression. The things that restrict us change from generation to generation, but the fact of their existence doesn't. We are all constrained at some level into boxes. And some are for the good of the community. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should do away with all the boxes. Having murder be an unacceptable aspect of life in community, I'm down with that, and I suspect you all are too. I'm good with that box. But some of the boxes that we create for ourselves are not for the good of the community, but for the comfort of the community. Boxes like the way we shame mental illness, or poverty, or a lack of formal education, for example. We no longer literally send people out of community for skin diseases or blood flow, just probably just as well anymore. Although, were you to ask someone who is physically marked by disease how othered they feel in public, I suspect you would get an earful. But we do isolate those who do not conform to our cultural understandings of behavior or our acceptable ways of living. And we force those around us to choose between the honesty and vulnerability of admitting to being wounded, which Spoiler alert, we all are. And the need to break ourselves even more deeply, to tear ourselves into ever smaller pieces, into public and private parts, just as we do in grief, in order to be able to live in a community as at least a part of ourselves. What makes the story of this unnamed woman, this marginalized woman, particularly poignant, is that she refuses the boxes. Because at some point in her 12 years of bleeding, she stopped caring why it was that she was restricted. She stopped being willing to be confined by her condition, by the discomfort that her illness inspired in those around her, in those who didn't have to live with such suffering daily and were really kind of tired of having to see it and hear about it. The woman refused to concede her worthiness 
to those who couldn't treat her. And at some point, some point in those 12 years, this woman realized that it was not and never had been her woundedness, her illness that had isolated her, but that it was in fact the reactions of those around her to that woundedness. It was their perceptions of the worth of a bleeding woman. But that had nothing to do with her. And so she claimed her own truth. She claimed the reality of her worthiness to touch God. Not even to touch God. Did you notice that, though? Not even to touch Jesus, actually. But simply to touch a piece of fabric that was Jesus-adjacent. That was enough. She claimed her worthiness to feel between her fingers the tangible reality that God's love was for her, too even if it meant she had to break the rules, even if it meant she had to sneak past the disciples to get there. This week, news outlets around the country put up a modern version of this story. I don't know if you noticed. News outlets around the country this week reported on the end of a kerfuffle between the University of North Carolina and New York Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones famous for her development of the 1619 Project, a multi-part series on the evolution of slavery in the United States. It's a good read if you ever want to. Hannah Jones had been offered a prestigious teaching position at UNC, but upon the objection of one member of the board of directors, she had been denied tenure and was therefore the first person to have taken that particular position who did not automatically receive tenure as a result. In this era of objections to the honest teaching of American history, her appointment as a black woman, as the author of a major study on race and slavery, was deemed too controversial for her to get what other people had accepted as their right. In the end, as many of us know, she turned down the University of North Carolina, opting instead to take a position of Howard, one of the best-known of the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities that this nation has. And as that decision made its way around news outlets, social media, the words that kept getting repeated were the powerful words that she said really uh, toward the students that she wouldn't be teaching. She said, always go where you are celebrated, not just tolerated. Sounds a lot like our woman back there in Galilee, doesn't it? Back there, walking up, sneaking, you can sort of imagine her cloaked, right? Because while the path of tolerance is one of constantly negotiating one's place, one's worth against the discomfort of others, of breaking oneself and hiding parts and presenting a brave face in order to gain acceptance, the path where one is celebrated is the path where one can be fully oneself without shame or apology. To choose that path is to choose the way of healing and wholeness in a world that too often splits us apart, in a world that too often sets up barriers between us and our own healing, even between us and God. You wonder why we don't make that choice on a more regular basis. Who in the world wants to be in a place where they're only being tolerated? and not fully accepted, not fully celebrated. 
the preacher Otis Moss III, pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, the largest of our United Church of Christ congregations. He preached on this text at the Festival of Homiletics this year. And he made an observation that I hadn't really thought about. He said, the text doesn't really note this, but it's hard not to see. When you think about what the image would have been, you read this particular story and you, you know, you get the picture in your head and what you end up seeing is that the disciples are forming something of a blockade around Jesus. Aren't they? They're trying to keep the crowd at bay. That crowd is squeezing in and they're trying to keep Jesus from being crushed, especially as they're trying to make their way in haste to a house where a child is dying. And we know from the other texts in our Gospels that the disciples often functioned as something of a hedge of protection around Jesus, keeping certain folks away such that Jesus had to literally tell them to let the children come. That wasn't necessarily their go-to at any given moment. There are multiple stories of the disciples mediating the movement between Jesus and the crowd. So one can easily imagine that is exactly what is happening right here. And so it wasn't just a matter of the woman approaching Jesus, touching the hem of his robe. It wasn't just a matter of risking being sent back to her isolation, being shamed when she was already marginalized. It was a matter of getting past those who stood in her way and determined who could and who could not touch the power of God. It's a matter of getting past the gatekeepers. Because the interesting thing about this story is that it's two stories, isn't it? Because it is totally a story about one woman who had nothing left to lose and found healing on her own terms, who chose the path on which she would be celebrated and not merely tolerated. She was tired of living that reality. Good for her. But it is also the story of all that keeps us broken, that keeps us restricted in the boxes of our own making. It is the story that points us away from our own cultural narratives that want us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and become self-made people. And points us very clearly toward the structures and the systems that make those steps high and those bootstraps short. And then tells us it's our own fault if we can't make it. Because this is a story not just of one determined woman, but of all the people she had to hide from to sneak past in order to access the one who took on flesh for the sake of healing us all and being accessible to all and being with us all. And y'all know she had to sneak. Y'all know she had to sneak past those who would have recognized her. Y'all know she had to sneak past those who might see the telltale signs on her clothes. Hemorrhages are a little hard to hide. Her fear at being discovered makes all of that sneaking, all of that skullduggery really, really clear. But Jesus knew. And Jesus called for her. And they both knew in that moment that visibility was required. They needed to be open with each other. They needed to see one another. 
And that turns this whole story from simply being her story, one individual's story of healing, into a reminder that God will not be contained within our human restrictions, because this is not just a story about this one particular woman, but it is a mirror that we can all hold up to acknowledge the systems that we have created in order to maintain the world in its brokenness. The moments when we are not, in fact, the ones in need of healing, but the ones who are restricting others and keeping them in their place. Whatever we want to believe, all of the self-affirmations in the world don't get us to the point of healing that this world so desperately needs. All of the self-care, all of the individual aspects that we want to hope can actually solve the entire world. All of the belief in any one individual's worth isn't going to get us a required medical test if we don't have insurance, is it? All of our individual understandings of our inherent worth isn't going to help us at all if those who are treating us come from systems that teach that men's experience of illness is the universal experience of illness, that black people have higher pain tolerances than other races, that mental illness is just a matter of attention-seeking, or that queer folk are repulsive and unworthy of care, all of which are real things that happen every single day in the hospitals and healthcare systems of our nation. Individual healing is good. It is necessary. But alongside of that, we need to be aware of those who maintain the structures, who create the little boxes made of ticky-tacky that are designed to keep people in their place, that are designed to make most people who bleed for 12 years believe that they cannot ever be made whole, that they are never going to be anything more than that which isolates them. Because for every woman healed of a flow of blood, for every Nicole Hannah-Jones who is able to go where she is celebrated, there are dozens who are maintained in their brokenness, lacking the power or the privilege or even just the pure dumb luck of being able to be in the right place at the right time with the ability and the voice and the microphone to claim their truth out loud. As Hannah-Jones herself said, I fought this battle because I know that all across the country black faculty and faculty from other marginalized groups are having their opportunities stifled, and that if political appointees could successfully stop my tenure, then they would only be emboldened to do so to others who do not have my platform. I had to stand up. It is not just about her going to a place where she will be celebrated. It is about her standing up and saying, tolerance is not, never has been, never will be enough. She had to stand up. Just as the woman had to grasp the hem of Jesus' robe. Not only for themselves, but for the blow it strikes to those who act as gatekeepers to our wholeness to those who support the structures that break us apart and the systems that prioritize the comfort of the powerful over the healing of the world. For the story of healing is not only a reminder to us all of what is possible when we claim our belovedness, when we claim our worthiness to touch the power of God, it is also the story of what happens when we try to restrict the love of God to those whom we deem worthy, when we value conformity over health, and comfortable brokenness over the messiness of healing. This little throwaway story, in the middle of the fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel, this little throwaway story of healing, starring an unnamed, marginalized woman as the hero, and the disciples as the unfortunate bringers of harm, however unintentional, is both comfort and challenge to us. As we cannot 
imagine ourselves only in one position, in one character of this story, without being aware of how often we are on the other side. And as we become aware of both our own brokenness and our frequent role in maintaining the very systems that keep us fractured, especially when we do, in fact, have something to lose. But mostly it is a reminder that we have to stand up. We have to stand up for the systems we create cannot contain our God, and the restrictions we place on God's creation fracture all that we would seek to contain. We have to stand up not only for the sake of our own healing, but to recognize those who have more to lose than we do, who have less opportunity than we do, and for whom we could possibly open a way other than the way of barriers and pain and tolerance that so many have known for so long. We have to stand up to an unjust healthcare system. We have to stand up to the marginalization of those who threaten our comfort. We have to stand up to the shame and the stigma faced by those who refuse the boxes we create because they know they are worth more than that. We have to stand up to a willful blindness to our own history and the brokenness that it has engendered generation after generation after generation. We have to stand up. We have to stand up. Because healing is possible. Not just for one individual, but for the whole world. Healing is possible because everyone is a beloved child of God. Because everyone is worthy of that healing. And because nothing and no one can ever fully and truly keep us from all that our God has promised to this creation. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.